welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And let's go with the very first Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling. Hope you're doing well. Hope everybody's doing well there. Listen, somebody just ripped the fifth month out of my 2022 calendar. Huh. I'm dismayed. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs> Goff to a good start with Duff. Very uh, topical uh, uh, joke about the months as we are in the first month of 2022. Looking forward to more laughs from Duff every week here this year and also to seeing him live on the road with Guns N' Roses when they get rolling again. I know that Chris Jericho and Fozzie are getting rolling again on the next leg of the Save the World Tour, which starts March 31st in Detroit, Rock City, and we're crisscrossing the country, even headed to the West Coast. We'll be in California in May. We're hitting New York City, Dallas, uh, San Diego, all across the board. Get your tickets at FozzyRock.com. And don't forget about the world-famous Fozzie meet-and-greet, where we play a special uh, exclusive VIP uh, short set just for you guys. Five songs in, in the VIP exclusively just for you guys. So FozzyRock.com for all ticket and VIP information. And talk is Jericho for all the information about Eddie Van Halen, because today I've got author Paul Brannigan, who's going to talk about his new book, about the life and times of EVH. The book is called Unchained, the Edward Van Halen Story. And while it is not an official autobiography, it's well-researched and written and a great read, available at Amazon at VanHalenStore.com and wherever you buy books. Paul spent seven years working on this book and poured through tons of interviews and articles about the band. He conducted a bunch of extra interviews himself, even spoke with Sammy Hagar and lots of current musicians who knew Eddie and toured with the band. You hear what Ozzy had to say, Geezer Butler, uh, talking about Van Halen opening for Sabbath in the UK and how they got blown away. Paul also interviewed Eddie Van Halen when the Van Halen 3 record came out. It talks about what it was like sitting down with Edward at 5150 at that uh, kind of a crossroads for EVH at that point in time. Paul shares stories about Eddie's early years and childhood, Van Halen's early tours and recordings, and what life was like for Eddie after the 1984 album, his relationships with David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar, which is also coincidental because I was supposed to go see David Lee Roth this weekend in Las Vegas. He canceled all his shows, and we don't really know why. Hopefully, uh, Dave is okay. Uh, but we're also going to talk about why Van Halen and Eddie didn't release any new material for the last 20 years or so of Eddie's life. It's a great conversation about Eddie Van Halen, and it starts now on Talk is Jericho. All right, we'll just go right into it. It's a, a, a little comedy of errors to get this rolling, but that's kind of the Van Halen way. Never take yourself too seriously, and when it's time to rock, you rock and that's what we got uh, so we're gonna do we got paul brandigan today who wrote uh, a really cool book about sir edward van halen uh, it's called unchained possibly the first biography of, of the entire life of eddie van halen i would think paul uh yes i believe so i mean there have been other books in the past i guess this one is the first one that takes it from Birth to death, sadly. Yeah. You know, it's book there was a long time in the making. It was actually supposed to be out about six years ago. Yeah, it wasn't intended as a, as a life to death biography, but that's how it's worked out, unfortunately. What made you decide to write a book about uh, about Eddie? Well, basically, it was sort of the, the sort of idea of the American dream, really, was what captured me. I mean, you had this little kid came over from Europe 
almost you know penniless. I think the family came to America with seventy five dollars. Obviously, they come to California. Eddie has his mind blown by California, and then proceeds to take that vision of America all over the world. Uh, you know, and it's funny that you had this little kid from Europe selling the American dream back to the world. You know, with him being an immigrant as well. In fact, all of Van Halen came from sort of immigrant families. Mm. David E. Roth talked about their sort of immigrant hunger and energy. And so, you know, perhaps that played a part in it. They all knew poverty, certainly. Although David E. Roth's family, you know, had money sort of in his immediate family. But, um, yeah, they all, they all knew hard times. To me, you know, sort of as a kid, in the, as a teenager in the 80s, Van Halen was America. You know, I mean, this is sort of, England and well, I grew up in Ireland, but Ireland in the early 1980s was sort of three TV channels. Not a lot of good news <laughs> coming through <laughs> right. on, on those three TV channels, but um, uh, Van Halen offered this sort of vision of colour and excitement and freedom, liberation and indulgence, I guess. So there was a lot to like about Van Halen when you were uh, like, little nerd growing up in in Ireland. Yeah, well, it it really is, like you said, Gene Simmons talks about it too quite a bit, how, you know, he is the epitome of the American dream and that, you know, you don't have to be American to achieve these dreams. And I think that's a lot of people forget the fact or maybe don't even realize that Eddie is not only an immigrant, like you said, a Dutch father, but his mother is also a Filipino, correct? She was actually Indonesian. Indonesian. Right. They met out in Indonesia. And to be honest, the sort of the racism that she experienced in Holland was part of the sort of driving force, the impetus for them to go to California because she was an office worker in Indonesia. But when she came back to, to Holland to live with Jan and obviously the kids subsequently, she wasn't able to get a job of that stature. You know, she was only able to get sort of cleaning jobs and, and sort of jobs that weren't really of her, the same pay grade she'd been used to. So with sort of no prospect really in, in Holland, the sort of choice was made to come to California where she had relatives and they were saying, this is better, we can do this. You know, this is sort of a, a land of opportunity. Obviously then they moved to Pasadena and found it wasn't all, you know, gold under the pavements either, but they certainly worked hard and, you know, they all worked in what I guess would be described as menial jobs, although that's a, a very demeaning term. Um, but they all worked hard. They all put a shift in. So, yeah, they, you know, Eddie and Alex, they knew what it was to work even before they joined the band. Yeah, it's funny because I think, like I said, whenever you hear that, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Because Alex, more specifically, but Eddie, too, they do have kind of the Asian eyes, which, you know, is part of the they have the very exotic look, you know, those guys. And that's why, oh, that makes sense because their mother, like you said, was 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 Indonesian. So. It's really interesting to me, the whole story of, of Van Halen, because, and like you mentioned, unfortunately, this goes from birth to death. Eddie Van Halen goes beyond just a rock and roll guitar player, and obviously, possibly the greatest rock guitar player of all time. To me, he is, definitely in the discussions, if you're a Hendrix fan or, or what have you. But he is more. He is a pop culture icon, as is Van Halen as a term. When you hear Van Halen, it gives you a sense of of good times. Like, not just hear the music, hear the word. Van Halen. Party, good times, fun, chicks, rock and roll. And Eddie is kind of the epitome of all that. He has become, especially now in death, almost a pop culture icon that goes beyond, like I said, just a rock guitar player. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, I sort of finished the introduction of the book saying about my sort of lasting impression of Eddie Van Halen if I think of him 
and it's that big smile and it's him looking down at the fretboard almost in wonder at what he's doing himself yeah you know he had that sort of like magic like oh my god like look look at this look what's happening listen look at these sounds that are coming from this <laughs> lump of wood and, and these six wires right 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 there was something about this, so the idea of freedom that they totally sort of encapsulated and it's interesting because the kids when they were super young they would go to their father's sort of jazz sessions uh, which inevitably would be like 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. or whatever. This is back in Holland. And, you know, I think their mum, who was quite a disciplinarian at points, she thought, well, if I give Jan the kids, you know, that's going to rain him in a bit. He'll be back by one. <laughs> and it didn't work like that at all. Like, he still did his thing. But the kids were there, like, having their minds blown, you know, because they're obviously sitting around the people who are, you know, they're probably smoking a bit. There may be a bit of jazz salt laid out on the table. <laughs> there may be a few drinks going down. And suddenly from this sort of, you know, atmosphere where they were forced into classical piano recitals at home and, you know, getting their hands slapped with a ruler if they couldn't practice their skills properly. Suddenly they're in this free-for-all with presumably some ladies, presumably some men with a laxer attitude to discipline than their mother. And you can imagine it was quite a fun time for them. So they were sort of, you know, reared in that atmosphere of, of freedom and um, decadence and a little indulgence. So it's no wonder they took to it like ducks to water. Something I, th- I found very cool is that is that your book, it's available in Van Halen's official store, uh, which would tell me that probably Alex approves of it because Van Halen's also notoriously secretive. They're a lot like ACDC in that they don't have much social media presence. They never have. They don't really tell you any plans of what's going on. How did you end up getting this book uh, to them and having them almost endorse it by selling it on, on their site? Well, I guess I, I should probably say that I don't think it's it's quite an endorsement for them to do that. That would be, I'll probably get in trouble if I suggest that. <laughs> as far as I know, uh, the Van Hill stores are sort of like a separate entity run by like a guy who's quite tight with the family. Um, so there's a magazine, a sort of a fan magazine called The Inside, which existed in the sort of 90s. Um, and it was run by a guy called Jeff Hausman, I believe. And I think that's a sort of an extension of that. So it's part of the Van Hill and News Desk website. Um, sort of like an affiliate to avoid a legal comeback. Not uh, endorsed, but they are selling it on their store. Not yeah. endorsed. And, and, and to be fair, and I, I probably should mention this at the start, you know, the, obviously you'll be familiar with the uh, website Blabbermouth. But when the um, when the book was announced, you know, sort of officially when it came out, it was, it was a story on Blabbermouth. And someone tweeted about it to Wolfgang. And Wolfgang said, you know, the key word here is unauthorized. Right. Him and a fan sort of got into a bit of a to and fro. And I guess what I would say is, you know, that I understand Wolfgang saying, look, who's this guy coming writing a book about my dad? If you or Wolfgang Van Halen or my missus decided to write a book about my dad, I might have some issues too. So I, so I get that. This is not an, the official endorsed story, I should say. Yes, it's my take on it, but I'm, I'm trying to be as truthful and as honest and to provide as many sort of new insights into um, Eddie's life as possible. You know, there'll always be the Van Halen superfans who think they've read it all and, and know it all. And, you know, I, I respect that. But I certainly learn things in the writing of the book. And so I hope that other people will too. Well, we want to discuss some of those things. But my question is, how do you put this type of book together? Are you interviewing people? Are you taking clips from other previous stories from 40 years ago? What's the process to put this together? I mean, all of the above, really, you know, anywhere you can sort of locate information. I mean, I watched, you know, so many sort of classic TV clips on YouTube, 
you know, the one thing that I had, which I guess a lot of the books on the band don't have, is access to British music papers. Now, obviously, Van Halen weren't much of a cultural phenomenon in the UK as they were in America. However, there's a lot of really good music magazines in the UK. And, um, you know, while some of them were quite scathing towards rock, they still nonetheless had these sort of insights and these interviews that haven't been drawn upon much before. I mean, everybody knows the Guitar Player magazine interviews. Everybody knows the Guitar World uh, interviews. There's obviously the Rolling Stone interviews. And they all sort of fed into it too. But, you know, to have stuff from NME and Kerrang and Sounds and Melody Maker and Record Mirror give some sort of different aspect. Right. And then I interviewed people too. I mean, I did interview Eddie at 5150, you know, towards the end of the 90s. I've, you know, interviewed Sammy for the book as well. And then, you know, a lot of other people, a lot of guitarists actually. So, you know, I spoke to Joe Perry and Tori Iommi, Michael Schenker, Scott Gorham, quite a few sort of contemporaries and people like Joe Satriani as well and Steve Vai. I mean, not all those insights made the book, but it all helped sort of give the flavor for me. The final college football game is here to celebrate. FanDuel Sportsbook is hooking up new customers with the 30-to-1 enhanced odds on either team to win. That means you can bet $5 to win 150 bucks on either team to win it all. Just sign up for FanDuel Sportsbook using promo code Jericho and make a deposit to claim your 30-to-1 enhanced odds FanDuel Sportsbook is a simple and easy way to use the app with great new offers every day. It's safe and secure, and when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as two hours. Already have FanDuel Sportsbook? FanDuel is hooking up all customers with $50 when you refer a friend, plus your friend will get $50 as well. Download the FanDuel Sportsbook app or head to sportsbook.fanduel.com and sign up using the promo code Jericho to get 30 to 1 odds on either team to win. Must be 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. New users only. $10 first deposit required. Must wager in designated offer market. Max bonus $150. Bonus for Tennessee users is fulfilled in site credit within 72 hours and expires 14 days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. If you got a gambling problem and you're in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, and Virginia, call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG. In Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text next step to 53342 in Connecticut call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org/chat in Indiana call 1-800-9 with it in Tennessee call redline 1-800-889-9789 or in West Virginia visit 1-800-gambler.net you mentioned something interesting. We've discussed this. I'm actually in the UK now. We were discussing this on tours to a few days, weeks ago, whatever it was. Why wasn't Van Halen bigger in the UK? Is it more of an American rock thing? But I mean, Van Halen is Van Halen. It's interesting. I, I would say it's because they didn't work it to the same extent. I mean, because they were obviously so, so popular in America, they didn't necessarily need to, you know, spend too much time over the UK. I mean, what I would say is that, I would say that first tour, the 1978 tour, 
but they came over and supported Sabbath. That was a real sort of reputation-making tour. Um, and by sort of common consent, Van Halen killed Sabbath night after night. I mean, this is obviously Sabbath mm-hmm. on their last legs with Ozzy, so not in a great place. Um, so I spoke to Ozzy and Geezer and Tony Iommi, and all three of them like held their hands up and said, yep, <laughs> you know, they got us. <laughs> you know, Night after night, they ruined us. Like Geezer said, yeah, you know, he said we had not with so much trouble going on with ourselves. Like we should have really risen to it. But he, he said, like Tony had a word with um, Eddie one night and said, you know, mate, don't effectively don't take the piss. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but they were really good friends, and you know, Tony and Eddie would end up in Tony's room night after night after night, and they became good friends. And so even though you know they did the British tour, and another band might have said, look. <laughs> we're not having any more of these. Stop, yeah. We got showed up for like 15 nights. That's enough. But they took them out in America as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I said there's a line I used in the book. I said they might as well have had a crime scene investigator following that tour around, drawing the chalk outlines around <laughs> the four members of Sabbath on stage every night because they were literally murdered night after night. But, uh, you know, when I spoke with Sabbath about it, Ozzy said, you know, at one point they sort of sat with a Warner's rep, you know, geezer or someone said, look, We've only got, we're only on this tour, aren't you? So you can break Van Halen. And I went, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the guys are kind of dead in the water now, you know, sorry, it's, it's how it is. But, um, so yeah, I would say for the UK, I mean, there was, you know, they, they toured hard in the first album. They put a couple of shows on the second album. But after that, it was like America was calling and they seemed happy to do as much as they could in America. Un- understandably, you know, I mean, on the whole 1984 tour, they only played, you know, a handful of shows, the Monsters of Rock shows with ACDC. And that was as the band were really fracturing badly. So that wasn't Van Halen at their best. And we're talking like six, seven European shows, maybe, at a point when they were at their absolute peak of the DLR era. So, um, yeah, I think it sounds like Whereas other bands, you know, subsequently your band, you know what it's like. There's a, you, mm-hmm. know, you can do 30 dates over here in this little island. Guns N' Roses, Nirvana, all the bands subsequently, what they would do is they would come to the UK, they would get on the cover of Kerrang! or Metal Hammer or NME, and they would bounce that celebrity and that sort of uh, acclaim back to the US and say, look what we're doing over, you know, right. we're hot shit. <laughs> Go back to America, get a good tour there, come back to England even bigger. And so it was interesting to me actually with fans now, because obviously I've been a music journalist for sort of 25 years or whatever. What struck me first of all when I went to America to interview bands was how they were playing venues that were a quarter of the size or a tenth of the size they were playing in London. You know, like it was like somebody could be in the cover of Kerrang! and do two nights at Brixton Academy and go over and see them in the Troubadour. Yeah. Be like, wow, okay. <laughs> I don't know, these guys were huge. <laughs> you know? But um, yeah. Let's talk about, you, you mentioned that you um, interviewed Eddie at 5150. Kind of tell us about that interview and, and the whole, it's a legendary place. I've never been inside of 5150. Kind of tell us the whole story with that. I don't know if I should use the term unfortunately, but unfortunately it was on the Van Halen 3 album. I think Eddie, obviously, and Warren, as you know, you mentioned about them being sort of quite a, a tight-knit uh, unit and quite a closed book sort of in terms of ACDC. With that album, there was obviously a conscious effort to be a little more welcoming, a little more embracing, because they knew it was going to be a harder sell. They had to be, yeah. I'm pretty sure that was like the only time in the 90s that Kerrang! were invited over from the UK, you know, to speak with the band in, in Los Angeles. And, I mean, Eddie was great. He was very charming and... You know, he wasn't drinking at the time, so it was like non-alcoholic beers. And what struck me, and again, I mentioned this in the start of the book, it was like um, being in a sort of teenage boy's bedroom 
you know, there was a big Sega game, there was the gold disc. <laughs> it, it looked like a, you know, like if you were a teenager and were given a load of money right. and said you could have anything you want, you'd be like, okay, can I have that double-seated Daytona driving game? <laughs> and can I have this and that? Can I have a Moon Man? Can I have, just deck it out like a teenage boy would. Like, I kind of have behind me like a child, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, Eddie was very welcoming and, you know, he did a lot of talking for Gary Sharon, obviously, but it was quite sort of protective of him and, and he was really sort of bigging him up, saying, you know, like, this guy was put on, I feel like he was put on this earth. To, we were making music together and really was giving it the, you know, the big sell. But one thing I also mentioned is that he had a guitar in his hands the whole time mm. and would sort of be, like, absentmindedly strumming it and, you know, playing it. And at the start of the interview, he set a dictaphone down on the table beside mine. And that was the first time. I mean, I'd been a journalist for, like, five years, I guess, at that point. That was the first time anyone had ever done that. And at the time, I was thinking, He's obviously had some bad history with a magazine and he wants to make sure he's not misquoted and he's, you know, if there's a word out of place, he's got to come back and go, hey, <laughs> I've got a recording of this and I didn't say that or I didn't mean like that. So I was like, okay, well, I better keep this straight down the line. And it was only later, uh, I, I saw an interview that uh, he did, a read an interview rather that he did with um, uh, the writer Chuck Klosterman in Billboard magazine, which I think was maybe 2012, 2015. And Eddie talked about how basically he wrote all those biggest songs while he was out of his face, off his head, either on sort of, you know, on the tour bus or whatever, but always in a state of distorted reality, let's say. The, the point was that he found it liberating, you know, that if he himself as a sort of a, an anxious, sort of get shy and humble character, if he was, you know, playing straight and sober, he was um, very conscious of, you know, well, maybe I've been done before or maybe I'm repeating myself or whatever. But when he was in this headspace where, he was totally, um, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying he was in a total state of unconsciousness, but he, was a, he wasn't conscious of entirely what he was doing. Sure. So right. he would just play freely and he would just record. And then he would go back to those things and pick stuff out, cherry pick. You know, I know a lot of bands have that with, you know, riff writing. Metallica sort of famously, you know, they would all be sort of writing riffs. And that's where they found the riff to enter Sandman on one of Kirk Hammett's riff cassettes. Right. So I think Eddie worked in the same way, but sort of, yeah. Getting into a state where he was uh, relaxed. Yeah, so what he was doing that day when he put the dictaphone down, it wasn't to record me. He didn't give monkeys about me, and he certainly wasn't going to be picking up Kerrang that week and pouring through it, <laughs> checking that he'd got his words right. It was actually because he wanted to tape what he was playing at the time in case, like, when he went back to it, you know, maybe he'd be like, oh, there's a little doodle there that you know, I could come back to and I could extrapolate on that. Wow. So it's kind of an interesting way of working, but I, I didn't get that at the time. And literally only during the research of this book, it was like, oh, that's what it was. So yeah, so I mean, I, I had a great day at, at 5150. And, you know, I wish I'd done more. I was with Ross Halpin, who um, had quite a good relationship with um, Eddie and, you know, worked with him from the start. I was sort of allowed to loiter around while they were doing the pictures and stuff like that. And it did feel like, I mean, I'm not like a super guitar nerd. I used to play guitar really badly. Um, <laughs> but I, I, it wasn't like I was sort of wandering around at all, looking at humbuckers and, you know, <laughs> feeling string gauges like that. But it still felt, I mean, when you walked in, there was a, a plaque on the wall for like 60 million or 50 million record sales from the RIAA. And you thought, yeah, okay, you know, whatever they're dealing with here. You know? We're in Van Halen zone. You mentioned something that's interesting and, and you know, kind of focus because I'm a Van Halen fanatic as well, and we could tell the same stories back and forth, but I want to go a little bit deeper than that because obviously Eddie was the tale of two guys 
There was, like you mentioned, Sober Eddie, very charming, a master of his craft. And then there was the Edward that, that in distorted reality, shall you say, different eras of different, you know, substances that he was on, which affected his playing. It affected his personality. What did you kind of learn from this book? And, and what do you kind of, is there any reason for this? Because every few years, Eddie would start losing his mind and hear, you'd hear the stories. I, I suppose there's a difference between the early years when it was indulgence. And, you know, when I say the later years, I mean, I think Eddie was sober for the last, you know, maybe 10 years of his life, maybe slightly longer. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm talking about 2019 or something. Sure, but sure. In, in the later years, obviously, he was on sort of some prescription pills, which possibly he shouldn't have been on. I mean, you might have a better handle than me on the sort of the U.S. healthcare system. But I know famously people talk about it as like, there will be doctors who will give, who will prescribe painkillers or different medicines for things that are maybe not strictly necessary. Sure. But yeah, like I said, I think at the start it was, uh, you know, I mean, he started drinking from he was like 12 years old or something. His dad gave him his first shot of vodka. He said he was nervous. Dad said, take that. Did the shot of vodka, not nervous anymore. Right. So alcohol in his mind, you know, sort of from the start was, it was like a trigger for, you know, freedom and the lack of nerves and the lack of anxiety. And, he, you know, I think he was an anxious guy and that, People use this uh, expression now, imposter syndrome, you know, to talk about someone who sort of doesn't feel like maybe they deserve to be where they are. And I guess alcohol and, um, and other substances can certainly help with that and certainly give you a boost of self-confidence when you're in public. As you know, obviously, if you're in a touring rock band, you're in public a lot of the time, as much as obviously 1970, it's a different story from now where you can't walk down the street without someone shoving a camera phone in your face. But yeah. It still was, you know, they were being spotted at every town. And, you know, you don't take David Lee Roth out of the truck stop in Nebraska and expect not to be noticed, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, it, you know, at times it was fun and then at times it was less fun, probably. I get, I mean, it's addiction, you know, and I, I said, I'm sort of reluctant to get too deep into that, and you know, as it applies to him, because we know that addiction applies to anyone. You can be a truck driver, you can be a school janitor, you can be whatever, you can be the head of a you know, CEO of a, a top firm and you've got those same problems. And, you know, I spoke to, to Sammy Hagar at one point in the book and we were discussing, I guess, the Van Hill fan, you might have read Red, yeah. Sammy's book about his life. And, you know, he was quite harsh about Eddie at the, at the point when they were doing one of the reunions, you know, talking about going up to 5150 and seeing him and, you know, talking about what a sort of disheveled kind of state he was in. And it's, it's quite sad and it's quite sort of painful to read. And when I mentioned that to Sammy, he said, look, I was kind of being kind. You know, I could have actually been worse about that. Sammy said, look, my dad was an alcoholic. I know how addiction goes. And he didn't drink for the longest time himself. Ironic Mr. Tequila. Yeah, right. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Mr. Cajuabo. For the longest time, he didn't drink himself, except for like, you know, really good wines that a friend would sort of recommend to him. But he said, you know, the thing about other careers is, like he said, you know, if you, you know, if you work construction, you can get away with, you know, uh, oh, sorry, if you work at church, you can't get away with, you know, addiction, being alcoholic. You can't climb in some sort of a, a crane or, or whatever, you know, and, and operate that under the influence. Yeah, but in rock and roll, you absolutely can. You know, from morning to night, there'll be somebody who'll wipe your ass. There'll be somebody who'll bring you your food. There'll be somebody who'll tune your guitar. As long as you're on stage for that hour and a quarter or two hours, whatever, and you can be drunk then, too. He said, you know, in business that, that we sort of operate in, it's entirely possible to be able to do that. And I guess, you know, when you're indulged or when you're enabled like that, it's maybe a little harder to break the cycle. I mean, people 
there's plenty of people now who you know we'll know who were party monsters ten years ago who've um, eased off themselves because it, people know that it's a sort of a, a downward slope, a one way path. It's interesting because when I read read Sammy's book. It was about the 2004 reunion, and I saw the tour, and I actually know Sammy, and he told me if Eddie goes on stage with the samurai hair, he said, don't watch his solo. He said, come under the stage and hang out with, with, with me. So he comes on stage with the samurai hair because Sammy said that's when he was super out of it, like he was fucked up. And so I went down, and under the stage, Sammy had a beanbag chairs and Cabo and lava lamps and I remember Eddie's solo and, and when it was done Eddie walked up to the microphone and said wow that was the shits about his own solo right and so you know he was he knew it was bad and that you could see like you just mentioned he was on stage off his rocker and playing and knowing like oh my gosh that was terrible you know and this is the greatest guitar player in the world right yeah, I mean, there's times when I, when I spoke to Sammy, he talked about that tour, and he said, you know, like, some nights we were good, said some nights I was embarrassed to be on that stage. And he said, like, I don't mean that in a brutal way, you know, about Eddie, but he said, you know, like, you'd have Alex shouting at the back, saying, come on, Ed, come on, Ed. I mean, Sammy said he read the YouTube comments under one of the, I think it was It's About Time, and he said, yeah, I'm listening to that, and it's so out of tune and it's so off. And he said, you know, my thought is, it's about time Eddie learned this song oh. <laughs> because you know, this is embarrassing and I'm still having to stand there and deliver this besides something that I can hear in my monitors is like might as well be playing a different song effectively you know so alcohol affects everyone differently and then you know the other substances we're talking about affect people differently some people can handle it yeah some people can't and uh, some people think they can handle it up to a point and then a switch goes and no not anymore um, and it's hard to know those sort of the red lines to cross or uh, say the white lines to cross. That's probably not appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, a, a, a tough time, I think, for all of them. That, and, you know, Sammy said, like, I don't have many regrets. He said, but I regret doing that tour. You know, he said, when I when I went up there to 5150 at the start and saw how, you know, my man was, I should have said, Alex, not now, you know. Yeah. Get him fixed up, you know. We'll talk about this in six months, or we'll talk about this in nine months, or we'll talk about this in 18 months, whatever it takes. But this is not the time. But I guess you get the offers, and, you know, the money's on the table, and it's like, well, you know, promoters are saying, no, it's, this is it. It's now. So you go and you hope for the best. Talk is Jericho is supported by Indeed. Hiring talent for any business can be a challenge. If you want an all-star team, then you need an all-star hiring partner. You need Indeed.com slash Jericho. Don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want, a short list of quality candidates as fast as possible, because with Indeed, you can do it all. You can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description and you can even invite them to apply right away. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Jericho. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Jericho. Indeed.com slash Jericho. 
Offer is valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Do you need to hire? Then you need indeed.com slash Jericho. Let's talk about the relationship between Eddie and Dave, Dave Lee Roth. I'm sure when you write a book about Edward, you can't not be writing a lot about Roth and Sammy to an extent too. But but by the time Sammy got in the band, Van Halen was a legitimate, huge arena rock band. When Dave was in the band, that's when they became, like we said, Van Halen, this cultural phenomenon that basically changed rock and roll forever. What was the relationship between those two throughout the, the different times in Eddie's life, even up until the end? Well, I think from the start, and in fact throughout, I would say it was a marriage of convenience mm. at, at best. I mean, Dave could turn down twice for Van Halen. You know, we went over to the house, he sang, they were like, Jesus Christ, no. And then after he turned around the first time, Alex was like, you know what, that kid's got something. So we'll give him a second shot. Right. And he said he brought him back over again. He said he was even worse. <laughs> then uh, they're like, get, you know, get the hell out of here. <laughs> you know? Dave really wanted it. I mean, he, the Van Halen's wanted to be musicians. Dave wanted to be a rock star. And he knew that, that was, they were his ticket out of Pasadena. Yeah. When he got kicked to the curb by the brothers, then he formed his own band, Red Ball Jet. And he said, you know, himself, like his, his whole sort of motivation then was to tramp the Van Halen into the dirt, you know, <laughs> right. and to sort of prove that, you know, this is the only show in town. You know, it's interesting to hear people like Rudy Learon, um, Eddie's guitar tech, talking about those days, you know. I think what he said, something like he said, all the girls went down to see Roth. All the boys went down to sort of watch the girls see Roth. They hit Roth, you know. And they all knew, they all knew he'd got something. And he was such a shameless peacock of a man. You know, I was talking to um, Sylvie Simmons, who used to write for Science, a legendary journalist. You know, some books on like Leonard Cohen and uh, Neil Young and people like that. And she writes her mojo now and some really respected lady. But she was reviewing him and did a lot of interviews with him. She worked uh, under the pseudonym Laura Canyon uh-huh. uh, when she was in, in L.A. in the late 70s. And she basically just said, look, Dave Lee Roth, like, what a slut. <laughs> you know, he's on stage, he's preening, he's got his trousers undone, he's got his the chest out. He's over there being utterly shameless. There is nothing he won't do to get attention. And that works, you know. And you, He's the ultimate front man. The ultimate front man, you know, Thor in a pair of two sizes, two small spandex, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And just a, a walk and exclamation mark of a man. So, I mean, I think they didn't, there wasn't a lot of love between the two of them at the start. But what I will say is that Eddie recognized Dave's sort of capacity for hard work. They studied together, um, sort of, not deliberately, but they ended up together in Pasadena City College for studying music theory. And they studied under a professor who was adamant that they should learn all this sort of musical theory purely so that they could then ignore it. And that, that was his whole thing, like learn the rules and then the rules. Um, and that's, you know, how you should live your life. And Eddie said, you know, we'd be coming back. Him and Alex said, you know, they'd got a schedule. He said, we'd be coming back three or four in the morning after a gig. Would still be there at like nine o'clock or eight, you know, eight thirty a.m. with our heads propped up on the desk. And he said Roth was the same. And he said well, some of the people in the class were sort of a bit sneery towards him, be like, oh, you know, get these deadbeats coming in after you know a night doing whatever. And he said, but you know, we put the hours in, and Roth put the hours in too. And like I say, a marriage of convenience. Like Roth knew that what Eddie could do, he couldn't do, and Eddie knew that you know what he could do was nothing without this. Right. Film star stroke rock star stroke animal at, at his side, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, this is a attention seeking man child, I think I sort of put it at one point. 
And yeah, so all along there was friction. You know, I mean, it's sort of well known that Eddie sort of almost wanted out of the band as early as like 81. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, after he got married to Valerie, I think there was so much, I guess you'd call it now snark, um, but so much sort of bitching and so much, you know, whispers behind hands. And I guess, you know, one of the things, if you've read Dave's book, surely should be do a reprint at some point because it's an absolute master. Oh, yeah, he, he needs yeah he needs to do a, re, a rewrite of that one for sure. Yeah, I mean, whether it should be filed in the fiction section rather than nonfiction is an entirely different matter. But <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, you know, it's very one of the parts that I sort of drew upon in the book and drew attention to is when Valerie first showed up in Shreveport to meet the band, to present them with M&Ms as a little joke from the promoter. And uh, Dave in his book said, you know, oh, I kind of ignored her. And then she went and made a beeline straight for Eddie's dressing room in a sort of like, yeah, you know, I didn't even know who she was. He's kind of like this <laughs> mousy little. I could have had her first. Yeah. Yeah. This mousy little thing that I wouldn't have had anything to do with. And you think, okay, you know, you can be a bit more gracious about that. So then, you know, even at their, their wedding, Dave refused to be the sort of groomsman, best man. He was like, oh, you know, I'll buy you a suit. But I'm not going to uh, play second fiddle to you, Edward. Thank you very much. <laughs> At his own wedding? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good about dishing up the cocaine. Not so good about being, you know, number two in the rankings, even for one day, even for one hour. <laughs> That's great. It's very uh, DLR, as far as I know him. So, you know, that, that relationship was sort of brought from the, from the start. But together, obviously, dynamite. Those two guys, and uh, but yes, anything was he. You know, Alex said you know after they had got married, there was a lot of attention from tabloids and stuff. Obviously, because Valerie was just as well known as, as he was. She was America's sweetheart, I guess, at the time with her, you know, her appearances in, in soap operas. That Eddie said to Alex, "Look, I've I've had enough. You know, I want out. You know, this is not what I signed up for." And that Alex, like, listen, man, you know, we've got freedom. People are listening to our music. People are actually listening after all these years. He's, you know, he's like, you know, Dad wanted to do it. And he didn't quite get his shot. And think of all the other people in our, you know, our circles who didn't make it, you know, maybe great guitar players like a Terry Kilgore or a George Lynch at that point or whatever. Like, right. you know, we would have killed for this. We would have bitten people's hands off for this opportunity. So let's do this. Like, even if even if we junk everything else, let's still make the music. So they talked him around. And thankfully he did. You know, you know the band were coming, just coming to a sort of a peak at, at, at that point, you know. It's interesting too because when you hear about Van Halen and you hear about all the um, the legends and the parties and all that stuff, the one thing you don't hear a lot about is Eddie being a real kind of ladies' man, like as far as being, you know, a Lothario. I mean, Dave was all about the chicks all the time, and you know, I always got the sense that Alex was really into it too, and I'm sure Eddie was as well. But he didn't have that reputation, and it's interesting too that he was married to Val for. Many, many years, 10, 15 years even, which you would not expect a member of Van Halen to be married for that long, especially that early on into the band's career. Some of this probably goes back to that idea of them being a tight little circle where the information didn't get out because I think by all accounts, stuff was going on. When you read Val's book and you know when you read uh, Sammy's book, obviously oh. there was definitely stuff going on. But at the same time, and, and like Eddie had, I mean, at one point, he was sort of on the cover of like the National Enquirer or something with the lady that he was being indiscreet with in his bedroom with his moon man and his guitar. The photo was there. So you can't say it wasn't happening completely. In those early days, I think it, it wasn't his thing. You know, he, there's a story he told. And yeah, this is a podcast. We can talk freely on a podcast, right? It's not radio. Yes, of course, please. 
there, there's a story, you know, very early on where he said, you know, I was like, went to bed early one night and I, I woke up. Alex had got some girl to sit on my face, you know, to wake me up. And I think, you know, Alex is very, very much, he, you know, drummers, they love it. Yeah, right. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so obviously, you know, Eddie was sort of for a time, you know, like I talked to Neil Slavazer, legendary uh, LA photographer who was with the band a lot of time. And he said, you know, like at the start, like Eddie was all goo goo gaga over um, Valerie. But then, you know, on the road, things can change. And, you know, he talked about how much he said, like, I was a photographer. I was getting three or four girls a night. There'd be like 75 girls in a hotel room. Just hanging around, yeah. Yeah, there was a lot going on. He said, like, I turned with everybody in the 80s. You know, he said, every band likes to think that the bad boys are rock and roll. Said, Let me tell you, Van Halen were the bad boys of rock and roll. And But the weird thing is that when you, like you say, we were talking about the earlier, that image, it still seemed wholesome. Yes. Because of those big cheesy smiles and it was sort of, it was entertainment. It, was, it didn't seem like, I guess when you re- read The Dirt and you read some of the stuff that's going on there, it's like a bit like you're wincing and you're like, man, you know. Because once again, what I was saying, Paul, is that, that Motley Crue and some of those bands had more of a darker side. Whereas Van Halen, just saying the name Van Halen, it makes me think of a party and a fun party where no one's getting hurt. If someone's naked, it's because they want to be. And like you said, it was, I don't know if wholesome is the word, but definitely just a great fucking time. Yeah. That's the vibe that they seem to have always had, you know? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I know their whole sort of mission statement was, you know, let's make every night a Saturday night. Yeah. And you can totally see how that happened. And, you know, one of the things I guess that I think about America, and I don't want to sort of uh, make too many wide sweeping statements about your country. I'm Canadian. It's okay. Oh, okay. Okay. I, I do apologize. <laughs> Canadians get that. But uh, what I was going to say was, uh, you know, there is no more sort of connection between LA and Atlanta or Baltimore or Pensacola than there was between LA and London. They might as well have been on a different planet, as far as I'm concerned. A lot of those American towns, you know, Minnesota, Detroit, Chicago. They're not Los Angeles. You know, I've, I've been to those cities and obviously everywhere's got a bit more landed out, let's say. Everywhere's got a bit more uniform. But in 1978, Detroit was not Los Angeles. Yeah. Like Spooky in Washington was not Los Angeles. So I feel like Van Halen were almost important that idea of like the ultimate party back to towns in America where it was totally alien to them too. These were, you know, top blue collar towns. That's what was a Van Halen heartland. You know, they would bring that party and yeah, when I sort of Think of like all those films that they get, like Richard Linklater and stuff capturing. Obviously, famously did a film called Everybody Wants Some. But that's the idea of like, you know, the college boys with their, their sort of the wide uh, trot, the flares and stuff. And that's the sort of the golden gods up there. That was the inspiration. They were the cool guys that, yeah, yeah. this is what we want to be. Or this is what we're going to pretend to be for one night only when we get the boys together. You know, encapsulated that really well. And, you know, obviously there's going to be the, there's always the, the Dave people versus the Sammy people. Like you sort of talked about earlier, when Sammy came in, this was like a professional, slick, mature rock band. And, uh, you know, I made a comment in the book, you know, obviously OU812 is coming out in 1988, at which point Appetite for Destruction is out. And Appetite for Destruction is feral, and it's raw, and it's punk rock, and it's nasty, and it's absolutely in your face. And then Van Halen are making music for Jerry Bruckheimer movies at that point. So the, the torch had sort of been passed as far as I'm concerned. Like, if you wanted a party in 1988, it wasn't with Van Halen, even though they were still partying. Sure. I wanted to be with Slash and Izzy and Duff, whatever they were doing in 1988. I didn't <laughs> want to be sitting down with Sammy and Michael Anthony 
<laughs> whatever they were doing in 1988. And that's the thing, like you said, and Van Halen kind of matured when Sammy came in. And as, as the years go on, they do mature. And, and the thing is, too, about Van Halen that was very strange to me is that you could make a case, and you still can, that they're the greatest American rock and roll band of all time. You got Van Halen, Kiss, Aerosmith, you want to put the Eagles in there, or, you know, there's a couple choices. The one thing with Van Halen is their productivity was very, very almost non-existent for the last 25 years of Eddie's life. Do you have any explanation for that? Did you find out anything about that when you were writing this book as to why there was only one record after Van Halen 3 in 1998? I mean, honestly, I think it was because of the absolute savagery which that album was greeted. Even worse than savagery in some places, like the... You know, hate is not the worst thing. It's apathy. Yeah. Like I said, I, I, you know, got a sort of first-hand experience with that album. But the interesting thing was just to sort of set the background. Uh, I worked for Kerrang! at the time. And, and say this was like quite a golden opportunity. And back in the day, Van Halen would have been automatic cover stars. But by this point in 98, it was like Cold Chamber or somebody were on the cover. And uh, Van Halen were getting three pages in the magazine, which for Van Halen was like, are you kidding me? But whatever, it's not the background. But also... When I went there, I knew that one of my colleagues had already reviewed the album. And Kerrang! works on a sort of one to five rating system. It used to have K's for Kerrang! Van Halen, the Van Halen 3 record had got one out of five. Eesh. And my friend Paul Elliott had reviewed it, who loves Van Halen, absolutely loves Van Halen, don't get me wrong, like not a hater in any way. His review said, <laughs> fundamentally the problem with this album is the songs. They're shit. Yeah. And that, that was his brutal assessment. And I knew that going in. And I mentioned, I sort of, Stopped, soaked in a little bit, said, you know, the, the album hasn't got a great review kind of in the magazine kind of thing. And Eddie was like, do you know what? It's the album I wanted to make. It was the first album he had made sober. And he was super, super proud of it. And he said, you know, it's a deep album. Not everybody's going to get it. It's not, you know, Van Halen 1. It's not 1984. It's a deep album. And not everyone will get it. And I would rather be honest with that. I'd rather, you know, take that to people because this is me right now. And then you read some of the interviews. Like I, I mentioned earlier, the, the fan magazine called The Inside. So they probably had the most honest and the best access to Van Halen sort of in those, you know, from the sort of Sammy era up until 2008, let's say. And there's an interview in that where Van Halen 3 has been out for about six months, say, and Eddie sounds utterly broken at the fact that he can't get a song on the radio. You know, I mean, he's aware that grunge has come through, you know, obviously even, even grunge wasn't at its peak at that point, but it's like, it's a different generation. And yeah, he's saying like, he, he's lit, you know, it's like he's almost sort of, on the verge of tears, where he's saying, I used to get excited. I remember the first time I heard you really got me on the radio. I remember every time our songs were on the radio. Not this time, nothing. No, no one cares. And they actually started making a second album with Gary Sharon. Van Halen had always been left alone. Ted Templeman, obviously, was a Warner's exec when he signed him. And so they were just let do their thing and they'd bring it up. Here you go. Here's the album. With that sort of the post Van Halen 3 album, the record company wanted to hear stuff before um, it was complete. And by mutual consent, the label, the band, everyone, it was like, nah, this isn't good enough. You know, like this isn't going to do anything. And I guess, you know, when you're talking bands of that statue, there's a certain amount of money that needs to go into, these are not DIY punk bands who are going to put up a few flyers and bring a load of CDs show to show. Yeah. You know, you've got to spend a million pounds to get that record out there and to get it internationally and then to sort of back up the, the tour and whatever. And then, Basically, it was like, no, this isn't up to it, you know. And I think the fact is, as I mentioned, everything else up to then had been written under the influence. 
for the first time this is Eddie sober, everyone is like just absolutely rejects it. Or like I say, even worse than that, it's absolutely apathetic. I mean, people who they're almost like blanket out of their existence on Halo Three, or they or they don't even know that it exists. You know, it's 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 interesting when Eddie passed away. I, like I had that album, and it just didn't click for me for that reason. The songs weren't great, and when he passed away, I listened again. Am I missing something? Because the way I always look at it, this is Eddie Van Halen, man. There's got to be something good. And the first two songs, The One I Want and uh, um, Without You and The One I Want, both those songs are really good. But they're six-minute long songs. They're not radio songs, and they're not Van Halen songs. They're very long, almost proggy arrangements. I mean, Gary Sharon sings great. Eddie's solos are great. And then the rest of it is just kind of there. But, you know, I can see how that would maybe hurt Eddie, especially if he wants to be sober and this is his first sober record and everybody shits on it. He's probably like, well, fuck it then. I'm not going to do anything anymore. And that leads to a different kind of truth where you heard that a lot of the riffs on that album were from the 70s. Yeah. Maybe he had a really bad writer's block and just thought, I got to go back to the past to try and find some new stuff. I mean, I, I think that's what it was. But I think, I think Wolfgang also played a massive part in the creation of that record in sort of getting Eddie in the right mindset. Because, you know, he was the one who sort of was like, look, you know, pulling reels off the, the shelves in 5150 and going like, listen to what you guys used to do. You know, can we just go back and have fun yeah. kind of thing? Listen to that mentality. 99% of that record is all songs that were demoed between 74 and 76, essentially. But um, that sort of absolute rebuke, I mean, people are golden gods, but they're not golden gods necessarily forever. And so, you know, obviously everyone now is going to, if you talk about Van Halen, it's going to be like, of course I love Van Halen. You know, those guys down for life. I mean, people should be asking themselves, were you down for life between 1998 and then 2010? Like, you know, you might have gone to see a show, but how much were you listening to Van Halen 3? And I'm sure most people, I mean, you're allowed, that's allowed. You don't sign a contract in blood that forces you to listen to artists' worst (laughs) albums. It's interesting. I think that whole time, I mean, obviously there was, again, problems with addiction and stuff. But I think the main thing was it's sort of absolute devastating blow to the ego that was like, this stuff sucks. Mm. By universal acclaim, you know what I say? Radio doesn't want to touch you. It's hard to imagine that. Obviously, there was a few new songs when they did the compilation album. Yeah. I guess it's sort of a sop to the, the record labels and to keep everyone happy. But I guess the, the tragedies of Eddie's life, I mean, obviously the big tragedy now is Eddie's passing. But he, when I pitched the book originally, the sort of the tragedy was that this is the band who burned so brightly for their first 10 years. And then the last 20 years, as it was then, there was almost nothing. Yeah. How can that be? How can one of the most creative and prolific and talented musicians, never mind guitarists, of his generation be incapable of coming up with 10 ideas that can be worked into a song? That, that seems unfathomable. Yeah. I guess that's different reasons for it. But to me, the main reason is the absolute rejection of the world, uh, which is, you're going to take on your shoulders. It's interesting, Paul, when you think about it, like there are a lot of artists, even if you think about, like, let's say, Billy Joel or John Cougar Mellencamp or even Paul McCartney, who still writes some good songs. But these are the greatest songwriters ever that just can't really write songs anymore. Maybe you check off your punch card and, and that's it. But it's hard for me to believe that Eddie wasn't writing riffs up until the day he died and maybe we'll hear some of those riffs we've heard there's a lot of stuff in 5150 in your book in, in unchained how much do you talk about the last five years of eddie's life and kind of what went on then not so much actually i'm um, partly out of a sort of um, respect for 
sort of the family and, and what was going on. I mean, by the time I handed in the book, Wolfgang was uh, opening up a little more about Eddie's illness. And I could have gone back in and tweaked some stuff and put a few more quotes back in. But I was like, I feel like people have got the stories. I don't think people need to know the absolute nitty gritty of the decline in, in those years. And, you know, maybe that's something that should be left to the family to enjoy the, the good memories. And I was quite conscious, never mind the last five years, that whole sort of post-1998 period. I mean, everybody has seen the photos from that time. Like you say, you saw them on tour in 2004. Yeah, There's yeah. some horrific photos. And there's some horrific stories from that time. And I kind of didn't want to get too much into that because I thought that's not how people want to remember Eddie Van Halen. And it's, it's sort of depressing and it's a human story. And, you know, I think you've got to realize sometimes, you know, this isn't all about the rock and roll saga. Sometimes this is just a man, you know, and a man who's struggling. And so I didn't really want to start on picking all that too much, really. You know, I mean, it does talk about, you know, the illness and, you know, the fact that there was, you know, a big tour was mooted as for the band to go out on, you know, where Metallica and Foo Fighters had apparently said they were up for supporting at shows just as a, a mark of respect. So was that was it was that what it was going to be like? Was it going to be Van Halen, the Roth, Wolfgang era, or was it all the eras? What exactly was the plan for that last tour? I don't think it was going to be all the eras. That, that, there seems to be a certain murkiness about that now because yeah. when I talked to Sammy at a point where I already knew that tour was being talked about, and I said, "You know, would you go back?" There was a certain amount of money on the table, and he said, "Oh man, I'd go back without any money. I've got enough money now." He said, I'd go back if it was like donating money to food banks or donating money to charity. And we could go on, like do two songs, Dave, two songs of me, two songs, you know. Those two didn't get on. You know, everybody knows that. They didn't like each other, yeah. And, you know, bringing Michael back as well. I mean, I, I talked to somebody actually recently during the sort of um, promotion for this book. And they said, look, I spoke to Michael. There was, a, there was a period that was mapped out. And he was, you know, due to be back out on tour with Sammy, you know. So I think that idea of the sort of, talked up as like the kitchen sink tour yeah. where they were going to have everybody in. I and mean, even like talking about Gary coming back in to do songs, like, can you imagine? I thought it'd be cool if he came and did, even if he sang like somebody gave me a doctor or something, if he sang an older tune or something, you know? Oh, no, 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 that would be cool. But I, I'm, if you had two songs from Van Halen 3 slotted in, slotted in just <laughs> yeah. before the encores, my God, the rush for the men's rooms would be in, insane. <laughs> so I'm saying that that was... But there was definitely a tour because I say, I was, at the time I was editing a magazine called um, Planet Rock and I was speaking to Ross Alton. We were doing a lot of stuff together and he said, you know, who have you got coming up for the cover? And I said, you know, we've got Thin Lizzy, we've got Deep Purple, we've got Van Halen. He's like, when are you doing Van Halen? And I was like, oh, we're doing it in, you know, three months' time. He's like, no, no, hang on for like nine months because then they're going to be back. They're going to be doing that tour and I'll be able to get some photos from that, blah, blah, blah. Oh, wow. You know, at the time, the magazine... Media is a precarious business as anyway at the best of times. And I said, look, I, you know, I need to be bringing in the big hitters now. I'm not going to put the Black, I mean, as much as I love the Black Crows, I'm not going to put the Black Crows on the cover and have Van Halen down the line because it needs that issue to sell. Might not be it down the line. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. That was it. So I was like, you know, Ross, I appreciate that. I, I totally hear what you're saying, but I, you know, I need to keep us afloat, you know, before that. So I went with that. But he, you know, he was adamant that he has, you know, Ross, he gets all the talk. Yeah. You know, he said, look, no, I've talked to Dave Crow, they're supporting. I've talked to Hetfield, they're going to support as well. It's like, wow. It's, it's a respect thing, you know, and it's like, for one day, they're going to go, come on, like one show with Van Halen, of course I'll do that, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that you know, there was a tour, but I don't think it was the sort of, let's all get together and, you know, sort of sign off on every part of our history as, as, as nice an idea as that is. As we start to wind down here, you mentioned that you learned 
a few things during the course of writing this book that, that you didn't know, that there is some stuff that is new material for Van Halen fans. We don't have to talk about all of it because obviously we want to read the book, but is there one or two examples of this that stand out of something you're like you had never heard? Yeah, well, I guess uh, one of the things, the stuff around Kiss, which I sort of find interesting. So obviously, famously, Gene discovered Van Halen in Los Angeles. <laughs> I mean, Paul, right. Paul Stanley was there that night too, but he said, you know, it's so Gene, he said that they, they, they barely finished playing the last song and Gene was in the dressing room. So he wanted to be in there first, you know, a little vulture. <laughs> <laughs> you sort of wonder that, you know, that idea of um, Kiss's management turning down Van Halen always seemed insane to me. I mean, obviously, some of that Gene Simmons Zero demo is now on YouTube and stuff. And you listen to those songs, and some of the songs maybe be a little looser or a little clunkier, perhaps than the the Templeman version of Van Halen One. But they're still the songs of Van Halen One. That's right. How could anybody listen to those songs, like twelve and fifteen of them every day, and go, eh, you know, I'm not hearing it. Yeah. Like, are you like, are you nuts? Are you, you, you can't hear it. So, um, <laughs> right. When I spoke to them, you know, Paul Stanley said, "Look, us turning down Van Halen was absolutely not about Van Halen, and was everything about Gene Simmons." He said, you know, were Van Halen fabulous? Absolutely. Were they undeniable? Absolutely. Were they going to be superstars? Absolutely. But we needed to think about Kiss. And we needed to keep Gene Simmons in check. He said, one of the things about Gene is, he's very about Gene. Of course. We, we haven't got time to indulge that. It was, a, you know, it was a tricky enough period, like 76, 77, 78 for, for our band, you know, and there wasn't the time to be indulging Gene's little latest hobbies. You know, we needed all eyes on the road ahead for us. And then there was also a story, I mean, Gene has always been adamant about Eddie asking to join Van Halen, you know, in sort of 81, 82. You know, he came down to the studio, hung out, listened to some songs from Preachers at Night. That's so ridiculous. We went off to lunch with Gene. And so I said to Paul Stanley, you know, I talked to both of them and, and Gene said, but that absolutely happened. This is what happened. You know, Vinnie Vincent weaseled his way in. He was at the table. He shouldn't have been there. He was sitting there like, basking in Eddie's glory. And he said, it's absolutely happened. Nothing to it. There's only one truth there. And then I said to Paul Stanley, look, let's imagine that we're in this room. You know, he said, Eddie Van Halen's come in. You know, maybe you should do something different with that. Okay, so he's gone there. He's gone out to lunch. Gene comes back in. You're going to go, how, how was Eddie? How was lunch? And you're going to go, if you're Gene Simmons, if that happened, you're going to go, well, you'll never guess. <laughs> Eddie wants to join the band. <laughs> right. And that would be a bit of a talking point, right? You know, if Eddie Van Halen wants to join your band, you might have mentioned that to your friends back in the studio, you know, to the producer. And so I said, well, Stanley, so did that not happen? Did he not come back and go, you'll never believe this? He said, no, it didn't happen. He said, like, he said, I'm not going to call Gene a liar, but, you know, that did not happen. I'd make of that what you will. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, there's two sides or indeed three sides to every story is uh, extreme one time. Paul, I would tend to, maybe there's a personal bias, but I would tend to believe Paul Stanley over Gene Simmons. And so when Paul Stanley says, didn't happen. I'm going to go with Paul Stanley's uh, account of history. What is your overall impression of, of Edward Van Halen after writing this book? Because we mentioned greatest guitar player of all time, pop culture icon. Kind of what are your feelings on, on the real Eddie Van Halen? My, If I had one word to sum up Eddie Van Halen, it's musician. You know, that seems to be what drove him from the start. He was in love with music. He was absolutely obsessed with music. And I say, I, I'll go back again to that sort of thing I said at the start about that idea of him standing on stage, looking down at his fretboard, looking down at his hands in almost wonderment. It's like, you know, sort of Disney's Fantasia or something where the broomsticks are sort of sweeping up and there's all this magic going on in the room. Right. That's kind of how almost I envisage it. You can almost see the notes flying off his fretboard and the he's dazzled. He's, you know, he's a sort of 19-year-old boy still. He's got that big smile good-looking kid, 
absolutely the world at his feet and all this going around him and sort of all eyes on Eddie. And, you know, I think music was the thing he was absolutely in love with. I mean, we'll talk about the fact that you never saw him without his guitar in the, in the early days. He slept with a guitar, he had the guitar on the tour bus. It was, just, it was never out of his hands, an extension of him. I spoke to um, a sort of famous music writer called um, Jas Obrecht, who wrote for Guitar Player back in the day. And he said he spoke to Jimi Hendrix's father. You know, Jimi Hendrix's father used to talk about how Jimmy was like a vessel. He was like a channel for this music and sort of poured down from the heavens and came out through his fingertips. J.S. Albrecht said, for me, that was like Eddie Van Halen too. He's the only other person that I've seen like that too. You feel it's just channeling it all. It's just sort of God-given natural talent. I mean, obviously, Eddie Van Halen worked so hard, you know, to get those sort of techniques on point. But there's something sort of so natural and so sort of unconscious about his playing that's a real marvel to observe. And I think that's what people love. You know, like you say, it's, it's almost impossible to say Van Halen without smiling. Yeah, exactly. You know, when you think about that music, it's just, I think that's the great thing that even as much as there were sort of down times and the, the samurai hair times and the sandals taped up with gaffer tape times, I think <laughs> everyone, when they think Van Halen, they think about good times. Yes. You know, that uh, for me, and they say, maybe it wasn't always a picnic for Eddie, but more than any probably, you know, musician that I can sort of think of for the sheer exuberance and the sheer joy and, and the sheer sort of delight on their face when they're playing music. I think Eddie Van Halen is that musician. If it said all it said in his tombstone was Eddie Van Halen, musician, I think he'd be happy with that. I think you're right. And I will say this too, as kind of a final thing, we don't want to remember Eddie, like you mentioned, kind of with his addictions and all this other thing. It's very, very cool. And if you haven't seen it, and I'll tell everybody else that's watching or listening right now, go on YouTube and Google Van Halen Hollywood Bowl 2015. Have you seen it, Paul? I've seen, I've seen bits of it, yeah. I haven't watched the whole thing. A guy took, I don't know how he got it, he edited together footage from the Pro Shot Tron footage and good cell phone footage. And he edited it together off the soundboard audio. And Eddie plays great. It's his last ever show. And he kills it. The whole band does. Roth is great. Wolfie's great. Alex is great. It really is like... Of all the stuff we discussed over the past hour, the trials and tribulations of, of EVH, he ended off as Edward Van Halen, the greatest guitar player of all time. And it is really cool to watch. So I would suggest anybody who's listening to this to check that out. Yeah, I think it's also great. I mean, I'm really glad that they made a different kind of truth because it completes the circle. It's a good album, too. It's a good album. Yeah, it's, it's a really strong album. And, and you know, obviously, the, you know, the guys in there late 40s and 50s to that point, but you don't hear it. You sort of hear those songs and you are transported right back to, you know, Sunset Strip in 1977, you know, and the T-shirt parties and the whatever else is going on with the band. I mean, that's what you hear in that record. A load of teens yeah. who are having an absolute ball. For me, that was a, a nice closing point. I mean, I know it's a, like a decade ago now, but it, for me, it, it, it absolutely rounds things off nicely. Well, I'm excited to, to read the book in its entirety. It is called Unchained. And last question for you, Paul, as a Van Halen fan, what's your favorite Van Halen record? Can you choose one? Well, I have to say Van Halen 1. Ah, yeah. When I went to 5150, I got a copy of Van Halen 1 on CD, and I got it signed to my friend Angus, who was the guy who introduced me to the band. And then came back home and thought, why didn't I get one for me? You idiot. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, so I, I don't have anything autographed, but I don't have it. But, yeah, I mean, like Van Halen 1 and Fair Warning, because to me, Fair Warning is very much Eddie's record. 
you know, it's a little darker, it's a little nastier, and there's some incredible guitar playing on that record. But Van Halen 1 is the one. Gotcha. I got to throw in 1984 for mine, only because it came out right when I was kind of right in the middle of my uh, early stages of discovering rock and roll. So I always uh, had affinity to that. But you really can't go wrong with most of the first six and even the first couple Sammy records as well. So great talking to you, man, and uh, looking forward to reading this book and remembering the great Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, I mean, the good thing when I've been speaking to people, they said, you know, when I've read the book, I've gone back to the records and listened to them again. And I think that's, if I was trying to achieve anything with the book, as much as you want to shine a light on the human behind the fretboard, it's really to have people go back to those records and have those memories flooding back and have that sort of sense of joy that they had the very first time they heard it. Well, I appreciate talking to you, dude. I thank you for writing this book and I look forward to checking it out in full. Thank you very much, Chris. I have an absolute privilege to speak with you. So thank you very much for giving me the airtime. You could better things you could be doing in London on a Friday night. So, uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? Talking about Van Halen on a Friday night, having a drink? What better way is there to spend a Friday night? Now I'm going to listen to <laughs> <Okay>. some. <laughs> Cheers, man. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Chris.